you comes from our listeners and from Front Street Shipyard, a Midcoast, Maine boat building, repair, and storage facility located in Belfast. Front Street Shipyard on Penobscot Bay, offering dockage, service, and amenities for owners, captains, and crew. Online at frontstreetshipyard.com or 930-3740. Support for WERU also comes from Bruce Parley Incorporated, specializing in custom-built staircases and also fine-finished carpentry on yachts, trolleys, etc. since 1998, in Trenton at 479-4269 or brparley at gmail.com. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Boat Talk with your hosts Alan Sprague and Mike Joyce is up next. Good morning, good morning. It's, uh, well, a cold morning, but it's still a good morning here in the coast of Maine. It's time for Boat Talk here on Community Radio, WERU-FM Blue Hill. WERU-FM Blue Hill, your community radio station. This is Boat Talk, the uh, call-in show for people contemplating things naval. Boat Talk is a radio boating show that's without peers, but... Oh, he done it again. (laughs) Well, not You think he'd run out. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not done yet. Today, we also have a board member. You think about a boating show with a board member, it could um, could be kind of a double entendre sort of thing. I mean... I'd seen some board members that were screwed up, but fortunately, we have John Johansson here, who is definitely a screwed up, <laughs> no, an excellent member. Uh, the uh, I got to call him the head person of Maine Built Boats, which is quite an organization. We'll be getting around to that in detail a little bit, but we're going to go first to some uh, local items, and uh, let Mike go first with uh, what you have, Mike. Uh, scallop season has started. Right. Yeah. With four new guys. Ain't they delicious? <laughs> and uh, uh, the diving season uh, started a little bit ago, but the draggers started up, I think, uh, first of this month. And uh, so scallops are on the menu. Yeah. I have a pet peeve of people that say scallop. Oh, you can tell That's not them. tomato, yeah. tomato, potato, not. potato to me at all. <laughs> uh, boy, that annoys me. They're scallops, uh, the people that, uh, you know, yeah. know about them and... And uh, get them out of the ocean, call them scallops, and everybody else should too. Right, yeah. They're, they're the same people who think uh, clam chowder is made with uh, tomato sauce. Oh, good Lord. And in Bermuda, <laughs> they make it with beef stock. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Kind of ruins it for the veggies, doesn't it? Oh, good Lord. I was uh, shipwrecked in Bermuda one Christmas, actually. And, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I don't eat meat, so, oh, you have to have some of our fish chowder. And, oh, big joke they played on me. Why is it brown? Oh, no, try it. It's good, Jimmy. <laughs> yeah. Ground up. Cow. Had the vegetarian eating the beef chowder. Yes, yeah. they did. They thought that was quite, quite humorous. So, anyway. <laughs> Yeah, scallops, and they don't need bacon either, but that's just the vegetarian in me talking still, so. 
So, uh, my turn? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, this is interesting. Over in uh, Finland, they're, they're quite ahead of us in the, uh, in the green scene. This is an article from G-Captain from December 3rd. Um, the world's first fully autonomous ferry has been demonstrated. It did a run, and it was able to navigate autonomously during its entire voyage between uh, two towns in Finland that I can't name, but it was a distance of roughly 1.5 miles, including docking, turning around, and all that navigating stuff. The return journey was conducted by remote control. Here's the question, uh, John, uh, comment. Uh, easier to engineer a autonomous boat or an autonomous car, do you think? I don't think either would be. Yeah, both challenging <laughs> environments where, right. where different strange things can happen, that, you know, and you have to allow for, for whatever can happen, can't you? Yeah, the other drivers. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and, and on the ocean, what could go wrong? To, you know, I just Not knocked much. on my wooden head, and <laughs> I say that as a professional mariner, so yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, easier to engineer autonomous cars or boats, neither. Uh, yeah, neither possibly. Is right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming, folks. Uh, no matter if we think none, none are. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, coming. it's 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 coming. Uh, they're they're definitely ahead of us on that curve. Yeah. Speaking of coming and uh, gone, uh, today's Bangor Daily News: uh, Bath Ironworks launched the last last uh, Zumwalt uh, class stealth destroyer. Uh, the other day, it is going to be called the Lyndon Baines Johnson. Right, the LBJ. Yeah, and they're uh, going on building more stuff. There's no doubt about that. Uh, no comment on, uh, besides you have to have a Navy. Here from also today's Bangor Daily News, here's a cute little story. Fishing boat snares seven-foot-long explosive device. A dragger off a of harp swell brought a seven-foot-long uh, cylinder back to the dock. It was all covered with rope and slime and stuff. And so they brought it up on the dock. They were rubbing on it to see what it might be, and they saw the word ordinance <laughs> and said to themselves, perhaps we shouldn't be rubbing on this thing <laughs> yeah. like this. Called state police. They came and blew it up. Yeah. It was found about 11 miles off Arpswell. I'm curious if it, if it really blew up or not after being in the water for so long. Well, but, and again, uh, uh, you don't want to find out when you're Primary, close, secondary so. uh, detonations, but 11 miles off of Arpswell. And again, uh, as as uh, we were saying before the program with John, you'd be surprised what's out there in that one of the best dumps on the planet. John, John has a good story. Let's call it underwater, uh, yeah. Uh, about pulling up, was it a torpedo? It was a torpedo. Yeah. And it was the Eastern Rig Dragger. I think she came out of New Bedford, but she was the Snoopy, which was a gamage built boat. And she dropped a torpedo on her deck, and I think there were only two survivors. I can imagine it must have slid out of the, being the shape, slid out of the net. No, they, they dropped it on deck. They dropped it. <laughs> and it's not the only thing in the literature. If you read Atlantic Fishermen, National Fishermen, every once in a while, especially after the war, World War II, there's accounts of issues with ordnance. <sighs> yeah, they should have a sign in the back of the boat that says, Do not drop ordinances. <laughs> We'll be uh, talking a little bit about Machias Seal Island and, and looking into it. I noticed that uh, the U.S. Marines occupied the place in World War One as a defense against German U-boats. And Barney Norton. Uh, we'll hopefully get to Tall Barney. Yes, I hope. <laughs> no, he's not Tall Barney. But... Oh, he's Tall Barney's great-great-grandson. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> he's an interesting character. Yeah. Uh, passed on, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, but you uh, got to know... Uh, I uh, interviewed him one time, yeah. Yeah, fellow who uh, claimed ownership to the Canadian island, but we'll get to that. He had a whole file in the Coast Guard. 
It was about an inch thick. <laughs> no doubt. Of just him. <laughs> no doubt. And again, it's a question of uh, Canadian-American sovereignty. No, no, uh, no, no uh, big thing, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, the other thing, we have been trying to continue the narrative of the, the uh, global warming climate change story here on Boat Talk. And this last month, the uh, United Nations came out with a landmark report which basically says, uh, uh-oh, uh, uh, the future is now. And I hate to say the uh, uh, response to that by people who deny such thing is, okay, another report telling us we only got a couple of years. We've been reading these forever. Just another one, didn't pay attention. The other ones, this one's no more valid than the ones uh, 20, 30 years ago is what they say. Which is ironic because California was on fire at the time. Yeah. You know, and the lead item of the news most days is the weather. And it is costing people a lot of money. And insurance companies, the military, and uh, responsible people are all kind of looking at it going, yeah, we got to make mitigations and, and uh, pay attention here. And on the other hand, um, as we say, the denial aspect, how does that end? How does that paradigm end? It ends with a bunch of pissed people in an armed lifeboat, <laughs> repelling all borders and blaming uh, the victims, you know, and mm -hmm. it's not going to be a very pretty thing. You know, it's interesting that I was reading the Gloucester Telegraph for 1838, 39, somewhere in there, and they were complaining about the same thing, but that it had, cold, it had cooled, it had warmed up since the early 1700s. Mm -hmm. So it'd be interesting to see, you know, what they were complaining about. Yeah. You know, has the temperature changed that much in that period of time and then this period of time? Well, uh, and, of course, uh, the the difference between short-term weather and long-term uh, trends, but the long-term trend includes uh, wild weather, mm -hmm. you know. So when people say, I like this global warming because it's so cold, uh, it's actually one of the symptoms, and that's not a very bright thing to say. <laughs> so, you know. Uh, but nonetheless, it's very effective, and the point being – Another boat talk point, um, you uh, don't have to have a better idea if you can just make fog around somebody else's. That's from Cutler. Well, fog. again, uh, yeah. Cutler, Maine. If, if you can they make, told me that at Beals Island. Yeah. If you can make a proper amount of fog, it paralyzes everything, even if you ain't got much to, uh, like, say, when the fog goes away, you can keep the fog machine coming. Uh, that's generally uh, the tactic. So. Some people good at it, aren't they? Yeah. Okay, uh, speaking of another thing semi-political, uh, this is just from yesterday from G-Captain. The uh, credit rating company Moody's, we're probably all familiar with that name, they uh, cut Maersk's tr credit rating uh, down to one step above junk bond. Maersk is the largest container shipping line in the world, I believe, or one of the top three anyway, a very large company all around the world, and they're cutting its credit rating down uh, basically for two reasons. One is because uh, the price of uh, petroleum that they're using is, is going up. And two, the trade wars. Two. Oh. Yep. Unintended consequences. Yeah. Uh, you there know, um, I believe I had something clipped. I don't have it here about the uh, lobsters we're not selling to China right now. They're going to Canada and then to China. Well, uh, again, uh, we'll be talking about the... 
the uh, a conflict between Canadian and American fishermen off of Machias Seal Island in, in a few minutes. And one of the ironies is the boys are fishing different regulations in the same water, but selling to the same market. <laughs> the Canadians can catch and keep lobsters. The Americans throw back, mm-hmm. and they're all selling them in, into the same puddle. Right. So, yeah, you know. And the lobsters are moving there anyway. Nothing complicated at all. Um why don't we do this before uh, we got, uh, and again, we're going to uh, be talking to a fellow named David Abel from the uh, Boston Globe about a film he's made about Machias Seal Island. But back in, um, was it August or uh, September? I think it was September. September. We interviewed no, our, October. October, okay. Yeah. Uh, interviewed our friend uh, Ben Emery, who is a uh, major conservation force on the coast of Maine. He's written a delightful New book called Sailor for the Wild on Maine Conservation and Boats. And uh, by some coincidence, uh, Machias Seal Island shows up in here. Today we're going to be talking about the lobster fishery, but Ben's account is uh, pretty short. Machias Seal Island is going to be definitely the topic of the day, I think. Yeah. Ben's account uh, deals with something quite different, so I thought I might read these two paragraphs here that uh, uh, might come back up in our conversation later. Uh, Father Easton Brownie and further out in the Gulf of Maine is Machias Seal Island. One year, Diana and I sailed to that bird-nesting island, the ownership of which is in dispute between the United States and Canada, although its management is under Environment Canada. Anchorage and landing are problematic except in a flat calm, and almost all visitors come in on a commercial tour boat. Even on the glassy day when we ventured out on our own, the slight swell dropped our dinghy hard on the flat ledge at the landing spot. The thrill of the birds on the island was worth it, though. Environment Canada maintains wooden boardwalks for visitors so they can stay clear of the nests. Walking across the island on the boardwalks, we kept our hands on our heads to ward off the cacophonous and constant dive-bombing attacks of clouds of terns. Most fascinating was sitting in a blind and watching puffins which I had first seen on a sailing approach to the cliffs of Grand Manan. In this century, tragedy struck Machias Seal Island and what may be a canary in the coal mine warning for all of us. The nesting terns, Arctic and common, abandoned Machias Seal Island in 2005, according to Linda Welsh of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service biologist, and through 2014 did not produce a single chick there. By 2016, a few pairs struggled to reestablish themselves, 175 pairs versus approximately 3,500 pairs that once nested on the island. A lack of food off eastern Maine, especially herring, caused by changes in the Gulf of Maine, resulted in the complete collapse of what had been the largest tern colony in the region. Gull predation may be hindering the recovery, according to the biologist. If we're going to be talking about the lobster fishery, we just mentioned uh, birds and herring, you know, and it's all connected. Yeah, yeah. We can even go beyond that back to the, uh, they say, gull predation, and that's because I believe part we used to until just recently, uh, you have open dumps, so the gull population became quite large because they were open feeding grounds for gulls. Are you saying that our, our new uh, transfer our new, station policy yeah, is, is, is uh, starving the gulls, so therefore the, <laughs> wow. they're, they're eating turns? Hey, that's um, a, a turn for the worse. I gotta, I'm, a, I'm a Bachelor of Science in Biology with honors. I, I know it's all connected, man, but that's a good one. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that weird? Well, 
we could hope. Hey, we're doing boat talk this morning. If you wonder what this discussion could possibly yeah, be about, starting out in the dumps, but we're we're working our way up. Yep. And uh, again, we have John Johansson in here. Uh, John, uh, uh, much a uh, co-host as a guest this morning, and and we'll get to main built boats, but in a minute, hopefully, we uh, have David Abel on the phone. Uh, he has a brand new movie coming out called Lobster Wars, which is uh, a uh, story of Machias Seal Island. Machias Seal Island. If you are looking at the extreme coast of Maine, you will see Grand Manan Island makes a channel between uh, uh, most eastern uh, corner of Maine and uh, Grand Manan Islands, New Brunswick. Uh, at the southern end of Grand Manan, uh, across from it is Cutler, Maine, and south of Cutler and Grand Manan a little bit, and a few miles offshore is Machias Seal Island, and a little rock off the tip of it called North Island, and it's been under dispute between the United States and Canada since the Revolutionary War. You'd think we'd figure it out. Yeah. Uh, there's money involved, uh, you know. So it's getting worse. Yeah. Um, not to mention prestige. A uh, Statement from uh, 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 states are rarely willing to simply re relinquish terra firma, even when no economic, political, or strategic benefit can be derived. Um, you know, that's just a fact of, of politics. And from McLean's Magazine, McLean's is sort of the uh, Newsweek of Canada, it says in a recent article, Canada is one wrong move away from a border war with the United States. If you believe a group of boiling mad Maine lobstermen, unfathomable as armed conflict between Canada and U.S. seems, if it's going to happen, it will be in the ocean between Maine and New Brunswick. And they already have been fussing a little bit. As some of the fishermen say, there's jerks. Uh, it's not the word they use, but there's jerks on both sides. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, they're having fishing wars on the other side of the Atlantic also, too. It's uh, becoming more and more, obviously, a more of a valuable commodity. So it's uh, going to be a, a, a worse problem unless we finally get our, our act together and figure out some way of making this black and white as to where the United States ends and Canada begins. Well, but it also turns out to be a uh, global warming story, which involves the fisheries, and things are changing. The Canada is on the good side of that one. Yes. Yeah, and uh, again, past that, there's just a stubborn national pride to yeah. start with. So, yeah. uh, you know, I'm good with that. USA, so, USA, USA. Yep, so uh, we do have David on the line now, so let's go right down to the... To the man himself, David Abel of the Boston Globe. Welcome to Boat Talk, David. Thanks for having me. Glad you're here. Um, we were just talking about uh, Machias Seal Island and uh, who owns it and what's been going on there. But um, you have been you've made a movie about that, and it's going to be showing in Bar Harbor on the what 16th. That's correct. And the uh, Criterion. What time of the day? Look, <laughs> seven o'clock at night, Sunday night. Sunday night. Okay, seven good. Thanks. Seven o'clock. Okay, yes. <laughs> Downtown Bar Harbor. Uh, David Abel, uh, looking you up, man. I'm fairly impressed. You've got the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah, thank you. Wow. Yeah, that's and, a good one. Uh, that is in uh, uh, with other Boston Globe reporters for your work on the bo the Marathon bombing. You were standing at the finish line when it blew up. Uh, unfortunately, yes. Not injured, we hope. Uh, I got very lucky. 
it was a pretty horrible uh, moment, to say the least. But I was, to make a long story short, I was working on making my first documentary film. And it was a film about the first little person to run the Boston Marathon. And I spent a few months filming her. And uh, the day of the marathon, I was up with her really early and then went to the starting line with her and then the halfway point and then went to the finish line. And I was waiting for this triumphant end of this incredibly courageous woman. And as I was standing on the center of the finish line, both bombs went off. And the first one went off probably about 20 feet from where I was standing. Ooh, you were lucky. <laughs> wow. And, uh, boy, well, I was going to talk uh, later about how you, um, uh, you know, find your documentary film, how much of a, a voyage of discovery it is, but I guess that made quite a, a, a statement in your film, didn't it? Uh, you're talking about the bombing? Yeah. Had, yeah, had, had to get into the film, didn't it? Uh, unfortunately, yes. Yeah. So, um, one of the hardest things I ever had to do, uh, in addition to standing there in the aftermath of the horror filming it, was editing it afterward and trying to figure out how to change the story and tell the story in the way that it made some sense and was not overly prurient or overly um, uh, sensational in some way. And so I made a short film immediately after the bombing and then spent a year following her and then ran the 2014 Boston Marathon with her and finished the marathon crossing the finish line with her. And that was finally the right way to end the film. And so we made a separate, a second film. Wow, man. I, like I say, I hope they didn't uh, get get that all stuck in your head too hard. Uh, you know, I'm glad you weren't injured. Uh, your career has been fairly remarkable. You're a uh, award-winning writer and and a filmmaker. You started in Mexico. You were in Cuba for a few years and got thrown out of Cuba. Yeah, I was uh, earlier in my career. I was. Uh, uh, it was where I started writing for the Boston Globe, and I was a stringer for lots of papers around the country. And tried my luck. It was the immediate aftermath of the former Pope. John Paul II visiting Cuba, and it seemed like there was some kind of opening there. And so I tried my luck and spent some time uh, reporting there and uh, angered some authorities over time, and they eventually uh, threw me out. A lovely <laughs> bunch of people otherwise, right? <laughs> right. Um, while we're uh, uh, trying to get your resume out a little bit here, I also noticed that you did a piece on Kurt Vonnegut uh, years ago, and, and it says here his uh, taxing year at Smith College. I want to ask you, um, I'm, I'm a big reader, have been my whole life, but I've been disappointed to find out that a couple of my favorite authors, or let's use the word jerks again, uh, you know, uh, Kerouac, Hemingway come to mind, uh, how about Kurt Vonnegut? Was he a grouchy old, uh, was he cool or not? <laughs> well, uh, Kurt Vonnegut as a writer was was one of my idols uh, growing up. And Me too. And he was for a lot of people. Uh, and he has, you know, a very crotchety voice. Uh, but it's a sort of 
uh, world weariness in a satirical way, and he sort of talks about his despair through humor, and he's very much like that in real life uh, as he is as a narrator of his book. Yep. So you've made this uh, film. It's called Lobster Wars, Fight Over the World's Richest Fishing Grounds. How did you come to the subject? Uh, well, I had written this, a story about this issue for The Globe a few years ago. And uh, since I got into making films, it sort of was a story that stayed with me, and I felt like there was a much deeper, uh, broader story to tell. And a few years ago, I started working on another story that had very similar um, overtones to it in that it was also about how climate change is affecting the Gulf of Maine and has led to the uh, unprecedented and accelerating warming of the Gulf of Maine. And that was a film called Sacred Cod. And that film was on the Discovery Channel last year. And it was basically about the collapse of the cod fishery and how the warming waters have made it much more difficult for cod to rebound. And to make a long story short, this film, Lobster War, is similar in that it looks at how the warming waters of the Gulf of Maine is affecting lobster. And that warming has led to a collapse of the lobster fishery south of Cape Cod. Much of the lobster fishery there is completely gone. There's been a 90% collapse in the catch there. We're seeing a decline in the catch south of Midcoast, Maine. But on the other hand, we're seeing a surge. We've, thought, we've seen a surge over the last decade or so in the lobster catch north of Midcoast, Maine, and particularly in these waters which this film centers around called the Gray Zone. And so for me, I just felt like there was a really compelling story that reflects how climate change is not some distant, abstract threat, but is really affecting people's lives here and now. And what we're seeing in this area called the gray zone is a conflict between Canadians and Americans over waters that both countries have claimed since the end of the Revolutionary War. Now, let's set it up. Let's go right, right back to the Revolutionary War. The uh, Treaty of Paris says that uh, all islands within a certain distance of the uh, coast of New America there, but it ruled out uh, lands that belonged to a grant to Nova Scotia, and I understand that it depends on how you draw the baseline of the coast and uh, go however many leagues out. You can make a map that includes Machias Seal Island, or you can make a map that excludes it, depending on your point of view. And uh, they've been arguing it ever since. They thought to uh, possibly resolve it back uh, the U.N. Uh, uh, conference, uh, what was it, in the mid-'80s, but they were reluctant to because of, again, the value of the fishery. Is that more or less accurate? That was a great uh, summary, better than I could have done. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in the meantime, the Canadians built a, a, a lighthouse out there. It's the only manned lighthouse in uh, eastern Canada anyway. Two fellows out there all the time. Correct, correct. Uh, and, they, and you talk to the lighthouse keepers and ask them why they're there, and they'll very 
clearly acknowledge that fact that they're there to fly the Canadian flag and to assert their sovereignty. That that lighthouse, by the way, has been there since the 1830s. Do you think it's considered good duty for the Canadian Coast Guard boys? Uh, I think it's lonely duty. Uh, yeah. I think uh, I don't. I, I don't think the lightkeepers are Coast Guard uh, folks. They're a special breed of people who love to be out on this island, isolated, and they get ferried in and out every few weeks. I believe mm. by helicopter. Yeah. So. Whether or not the Canadians have been sitting there, the Americans have been fishing it. And if uh, this gray zone you would think would be a uh, orderly shaped blob centered on Machaya Seal Island, but in fact it's a very strange shape, uh, gerrymandered kind of piece of water it looks like. Uh, and uh, it stretches up Grand Manan Channel. Um, it turns out that that water was generally fished by the Americans. We have a summer season, and the Canadians had a season that started goes October to June. And those waters were pretty much always fished uh, exclusively by Americans until the uh, catch went way up because the water's changing. And the Canadians kind of looked at the amount of lobsters the Americans were catching and went, hey, we could catch them too. Yeah. Again, fairly accurate? That's, That's precisely the case. And so... What's happened over the last decade since the Canadians started to assert their sovereignty and started to fish these waters, there's been great gear conflict. And, of course, gear conflict is not uncommon among fishermen or lobstermen uh, throughout the coast of Maine or anywhere else. We're, we're all that, chuckling. It's a good good subject on boat talk sometimes. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. But it's, it's a different situation when you have different law enforcement authorities that are overseeing different uh, fishermen from different countries. You have different kinds of gear that both of the uh, fishermen are using, different kinds of boats, different kinds of traditions of how they fish and uh, which direction they fish. And then there's the outright uh, animosity that has been brewing and that has led to not just conflict but sabotage. Fishermen don't all play well with their own neighbors, let alone foreigners. You know, we, we prove that right here at home. Um, in general, though, the uh, uh, territories are viewed somewhat in the state of Maine. It's very unusual that they're allowed, um, not legally, but they're allowed by custom. And in some ways, they're thought of as conservation matter. But one of the big conservation matters here is that the Americans have different uh, regulations than the Canadians do. We throw back eggers. Uh, shorts and big ones. The Canadians keep all of them. And then they sell them to the same dealers. That's true. And there's increasingly, the main there's are increasingly selling them to the Canadians as a result of the tariffs that China imposed earlier this year. Because we have tariffs and they don't. Uh, Is the, right, exactly. the lobsters... The Canadians, the Canadians do not have the 25% tariff, so... The main dealers are basically selling them to Canadian wholesalers who are selling them to the Chinese. Good times. Yeah. Hey, um, I deliver boats uh, quite a bit, and I get over to uh, Nova Scotia on a regular basis. Went to college there. Uh, tried to emigrate, but they wouldn't have me. And, uh, you know, so I know a little bit about <laughs> the place. And a uh, year before last, we were looking for a fuel filter, and an old Canadian Coast Guard captain uh, 
Acadian fellow took us on a tour of the wharfs while the boys were fitting out for herring. And uh, if you think the American fishermen have big trucks and big boats, uh, I'm telling you what, those boys in Nova Scotia have bigger, wider boats and, and even bigger trucks. They all seem to like duallys, you know, and the point being they seem to be uh, fairly healthy financially. Uh, absolutely, and we certainly discussed that in the film. Uh, these are good times. These are high times. And arguably that's because of climate change and the warming. And uh, the question is, as every, it weighs on every lobsterman throughout Maine and beyond, is how long that's going to last. And in the gray zone, we don't know how long this conflict is going to remain if the lobster population continues to move north. Mm. How about this one, David? Uh, still talking about the difference uh, and similarities between Maine and uh, Canadian fishermen. I'm at the Maine Coast Hospital uh, getting x-rayed. There's a old fisherman in there, and a younger one comes in. Uh, one's from Winter Harbor, the other's from Sorrento. The uh, older fellow had just been talking with a lady in the waiting room about his heart. He was having a heart problem. So a younger fisherman comes in, and the older guy says, Dow, what are you doing here? Uh, it's not your not your heart, is it? And the younger guy goes, Ow, oh, you know I haven't got one, you know? And then we started talking about um, uh, the fishery and uh, about dragging and stuff and uh, fishing across the line and how we do what we do and they do what we do, what we do too. We all do the same uh, basic things uh, taken from each other. But the fact is this uh, younger fisherman who did not have the heart problem had uh, been picking up his traps for the season and got bitten by a big agar. And it wasn't the bite that got him. That uh, made him drive his elbow up under the combing of the boat. And by the time he come to the hospital, it was the size of a basketball, apparently. He had wow. health insurance, but he didn't want to use it, you know. And uh, if he was a Canadian fisherman, he wouldn't have had a basketball-sized elbow, for one thing, you know. Right. But again, those boys, I thought it was pretty humorous. Oh, we, we, we steal from them as hard as we can, and they do it to us, too, he says. You know? Right. And the point being and is... It to, I mean, there are obviously a lot of differences between the two countries and the system, but it also speaks to the regulations and, and the uh, way their system is subsidized in some ways, and Americans are more out on their own. Yeah. Now, making this movie... Um, as far as the subject goes, you don't even need the conflict. You've just got such beautiful scenery. I saw the, uh, uh, what do you call it, preview of the thing. It's gorgeous. Thank you so much. Yeah, it is really hard to fail as a cinematographer uh, when the surroundings are so incredibly resting. When you're making that movie, you have an idea of the story that you're after. But making a documentary, I'm thinking uh, things happen. Is it uh, how much, uh, how much of a uh, like I say, planned ver voyage versus a voyage of discovery is is uh, your documentary? Well, it's a combination. And as a filmmaker and as a writer, my hope is to capture things as they happen. In fact, our production company is named as uh, things happen, um, and we basically try to tell stories and tell, make films and scenes that capture what's happening and not interfere and just essentially watch and observe. And hopefully the stories will weave together thoughtfully and 
uh, we hope this one did. Very good, David. Um, will you be at the show on, in Bar Harbor? Sadly, I won't be. I was just actually up at the Stonington Opera House uh-huh. a week and a half ago uh, to show the film, and I've made the trip so many times here from Boston that I need a break. Yeah. But I would love, but I love Bar Harbor, and absolutely wish I could be there. And if they have any interest in showing the film in the summer, I would love to come back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, we could uh, hook you up with some races, perhaps. We'll be talking about that in a little bit. Uh, I would love that. Good Lord, boys! I don't do think. It. I don't think we've given the phone number yet this morning, and it occurs oh. to me that somebody, uh, one of our friends in Stonington, has seen this film and might like to comment on it. That's probably true. one 625 We're talking to David Abel this morning. He's with the Boston Globe and has made a, uh, another documentary. He's a writer and a filmmaker, award-winning filmmaker, as well as journalist. Uh, Lobster Wars, Fight Over the World's Richest Fishing Grounds. And uh, it's about Machias Seal Island. It's going to be shown at the Criterion Theater Sunday, December 16th, 7 o'clock at night, downtown by Abba. I'll be there. Yeah, I imagine I might like to see that, too, as a matter of fact. Sorry you're not going to be there, David. Well, thank you. Thank you, David. It's been interesting, and uh, good luck with the movie. Okay, well, thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate your time. (laughs) So long. We... uh, uh, talking to David Abel there about uh, Machias Seal Island, we didn't get to some of the great history. Uh, again, the the island has been, uh, the grounds around it have been contested over the years. And back in the 1800s, there was a very famous Mena, known as Tall Barney. He was a fisherman out of uh, Cutler, I think. And uh, Beals. Beals, oh yeah. He... Uh, he fussed with the boys, uh, Canadian boys out there, and Tall Barney was not called Tall Barney for nothing. I'm thinking he was a pretty big fella. He and, could t- uh, carry two uh, eggs, uh, two uh, kegs on his shoulders. In fact, there's, you know, that's a one of the uh, logos that you see around uh, Jonesport, Beals Island. Kegs of uh, nails or whiskey? No idea. Probably <laughs> could could have probably have been uh, fish. Fish. Okay. Right. Yeah. Flying fish, maybe. But Barna Norton was the more interesting one out there. Right. Now, Tall Barney claimed ownership of the island, and he left it in his will. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I, this is going back a lot of years when I interviewed uh, Barna. And Barna is Tall Barney's great-great-great-grandson. No idea what yeah, the relationship was. They're all related to yeah. each other. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, Barna was always out there. In fact, had the Canadian Navy come out after him one time because he was on the island. And claiming ownership, he had a lobster uh, boat called Chief. Yep, that was registered Machias Seal Island, USA. Was the hail on it? Yep, it was the Young Brothers. Yep, and again, uh, he was all over uh, those Canadian fellows out there, going, "Hey, it's my island," and playing games with little flags and all kinds of stuff, and yeah, claiming like, that it was left to him by his great 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 grandfather, Tall Barney. Yeah, he was always out there. Yep. So, again, he made a little bit of fuss with the Canadian Navy, maybe the Canadian Probably Coast Guard. Probably a lot. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Hope it wasn't too violent. No, it never got violent, but, uh, you know, he did make sure that they understood that he was the owner of that island. Yeah. yeah. And so Told him where to go. Huh? Yeah, and I don't know how often the U.S. Coast Guard got involved either because they had a, a dossier on him that was probably at least an inch thick. 
Well, and the most recent development, which is uh, surpassingly strange, but apparently uh, just this last summer, U.S. Uh, uh, Customs and Border Enforcement has been out there stopping Canadian fishermen and looking for Mexican rapists and fentanyl smugglers, I believe. Uh, you know, I doubt they found any. <laughs> I don't think but so. But they've pissed the Canadians off. They've been, the American border police have been searching Canadian vessels. We're good uh, at that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just in, uh, like, say, in the last year or so. So, yeah, um, it's kind of poking the hornet's nest, isn't it? Well, again, uh, no... Uh, no uh, legal government's going to give up territory willing to start with, uh, whether it has uh, value, uh, economic, or strategic, and there is economic value here. So yeah. um, It needs to be resolved. Ain't it interesting? Uh, now, yeah. let's all... It might be a hard one to resolve. Well, uh, while I'm looking at this uh, Machias Seal Island stuff on the computer last night, uh, I come across a quote from David Cousins, uh, former president or still, I don't know, Maine Lobsterman's Association. Former. Yeah. Dave says, um, I'll tell you what, the last uh, 20 years of global warming have been damn good to us. He says the next 30 are probably going to put us under. Could be. Yeah. And remember, we interviewed uh, Christopher White in uh, July on Boat Talk. Uh, the book is called The Last Lobster. And it is uh, uh, based on the premise, uh, not a premise at all, a fact that the lobster fishery is migrating north about uh, just slightly less than five miles a year. And uh, right now it's centered off Stonington, Maine, and next year it's going to be down MDI way, and past that it's going to be the other side of Machias Seal Island and all the way to Canada, <laughs> you know. And at that time, what do we got? We've got, um, I, I forgot to write down the figure for the uh, value of the lobster fishery, but you try to find a factory that will replace that on the coast of Maine. Not going to. Not going to. Mm. Um, whether or not you subscribe to the fact that uh, global warming is all a hoax to put the communists in charge of, uh, you know, uh, uh, telling us how we can all be and not be, because that's what some people bring it down to, uh, you know. And again, it don't end well. So, but we're doing boat talk this morning. Haven't heard from anybody. Alan yeah. did give the phone number one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. That's one eight six 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 two five W E R U. Or you can go online to uh, boattalk at gmail.com, too. Yep. We're standing by there. And we do have a uh, friend, John Johansson, in this morning, uh, editor of Maine Coastal News, the state of Maine's boating newspaper. And uh, anything uh, glamorous or exciting in particular going on? Boat shops are doing well. Yeah. But they're wary. Catch wasn't as good as they thought, so some of the boat shops are kind of wondering what the future is. You know, are all, you know, there going to be as many boats built as there has been in the past? So they're sort of on a uh, at-hold kind of thing as yeah. far as hiring? Well, they're not hiring. That, that's always a problem. Yeah. I mean, you can't. There's most of these shops. You could probably put another 150, 200 bodies inside. They'd hire them instantly. Uh, but the big problem seems to be that you know you're waiting for the fishermen to figure out how much money came in that's kind of disposable income for that next boat, and are they going to jump? Now, a lot of these guys have already bought boats in the last you know three to five years. Yep, there have been. Quite a few boats put out by. But, you know, I had a call this. Shops. I had a call this morning for a guy looking for a boat, but he wants to go down and use it as a dive boat off of Rhode Island. But he's looking at a lobster boat hull. 
Uh-huh. Now it's a beautiful thing. The the boat business, built, building business on the coast of Maine is booming for two reasons. One is that the uh, trickle uppers are just floating in a really good puddle nowadays. They've got a, you know, uh, they've got plenty of disposable income for yachts. Uh, God bless them. On the other hand, the fishery has been booming, and the kids are mortgaging themselves big time to buy big boats and big trucks and double wides, and you know, mm-hmm. um, with the idea that if they keep their heads down, the money will just keep churning. And again, times is changing. Yeah, but a lot of you know, you don't uh, do that with Mother Nature. Oh boy, and especially <laughs> again, the, the young fellows on the coast of Maine. This is this is what they've come into, and it's it's uh, kind of sweet for them, but they may not have the perspective. Um, I've been delivering boats for 30 years. I see, if nothing else, I see the mix of fishing gear has changed on the East Coast of North America. And what used to be in my way down in Buzzards Bay, Rhode Island Sound, oh, it ain't there no more. Mm-hmm. You know, all that fishing gear is gone. Um, boys ain't there either. So, you know, um, and again, uh, how it shall be replaced will be uh, an interesting problem when it gets here. But right now, the boat building industry basically couldn't be happier. No, it's doing well. Yeah. I mean, you look at both pleasure and commercial, and, the, you know, there's some yards that are builders that are out two years. Yeah. yeah. You just had a conference last week that sounded very interesting, speaking of doing well, but we're not just doing well, but we're moving forward. There's a lot of uh, new uh, advances and techniques that are being used. That was a conference, you know, we've done it, I think, five years, mm-hmm. and that one was especially uh, timely. The first conference that came up was on diesel engines, and uh, Peter Emerson, who works for Mac Boring, he went head-to-head with the EPA and said that the Tier 4 engines were creating a hardship on the lobster fishermen and that, you know, there was a need to change it back to a Tier 3 so that, you know, because of the hardship and the money and what you had to do to the boat— uh, because the exhaust system is so hot underneath the deck, it's really not a, you know, a feasible alternative. So the EPA has been up here. They went through Westmac, they went through SW Boatworks, and I also think they went to uh, Greg Sanborn down at Billings, and I think they went up to H&H Marine in Steuben. And they basically agreed that they didn't understand how a fisherman fishes. They thought that you just, you know, steam, you know, 20 knots all day long. Well, you don't. You steam out 20 knots, and then you fish. And most of the time, that's, you know, bouncing around from one string to the other. Start, a lot of starting and stopping, a lot of gunning yeah. and yeah. Right. Yep. And so it looks like you can get a waiver to actually put in an engine over 804 horsepower. Hmm. Well, that's one, one good thing that we're... Yeah, and then the, the conference. But I was, I was thinking about carbon fiber. Now. Yeah, that was an interesting one. And the guy that was the most interesting in that talk was the guy that is the new head of the landing school down in uh, Kenny Bunkport mm-hmm. or Kenny Bunk. Uh, when he started actually uh, putting it together uh, and comparing it to other forms of glasswork, whether you use vinyl ester resin, polyester resin, and then adding carbon. You know, and how much carbon do you add, and where do you add it? And it, it got real interesting, and it, and the cost in a lot of cases was was down below what it would cost you sometimes to do a polyester layup. But it also uh, showed you how much strength it had by putting what they call a plank 
of uh, carbon on top of a longitudinal stringer and how much more strength it has compared to just doing a regular layup, hmm. you know. So there was a lot to that. And then there was the hurricane guy that showed us uh, some boats that actually came apart and not in a good way in uh, the Caribbean. Were there lots of pictures with that one? <laughs> well, the best part was when he started showing after between the break, he started showing the boats apart. Uh-huh. And some of them, they weren't laid up very well. The cores were not attached to the outer skin or the inner skin. Uh, the balsa core was all gone. We're back to main built boats again. No, we're uh, <laughs> engaging in destructive testing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, well, we <laughs> can large, do that. We do that at scale. the university. On a large national, uh, natural scale, yeah. Yeah, you just do that at the university. Yeah. <laughs> it's easier. Yeah. But again, all these broken boats uh, are exposing some of their, their inherent flaws. And, and, oh, yeah. Uh, they could have been a little stronger. Um, I just found a uh, card from a uh, uh, met a was on delivery uh, going through the Cape Cod Canal this summer and met a boat surveyor from Wilmington, North Carolina, where of course Michael smacked, and we'll be talking to him uh, a little bit about uh, surveying and how do you prepare and what's the what's the damage after a, a storm like that, you know. Well, you know what they've got down there is catamarans. Yeah. You know what a catamaran does in a hurricane? Kites. They fly, yeah. man. They flip right over. They fly, yeah. yeah. And um, I've ridden out a couple of storms, uh, one at Sandy Hook, and um, we uh, observed uh, all the carnage that went on in the uh, mooring field there from boats that just weren't secured right, Mm -hmm. gear that's not secured on the boats, uh, let alone boats that aren't secured right to their own moorings. And again, uh, all kinds of bad things can happen, but you can prevent a lot of them. Yeah, Yeah, they learned a lot with this one. There was a lot, like we said, there was a lot of structural issues. Uh, because of the boat manufacturer, but there was things that they had done. They had put a canopy on one of the docks. Well, that canopy didn't hold up well. No, again, uh, and everything's right side by side. So yeah. if one goes, it's usually on top of the other one, and a domino effect, right? Yeah. And again, if if the boat next to me, uh, we got a storm coming, and a boat anywhere's near me has its bimini up and its sail still on the boom, I'll go over and take those off because mm-hmm. you know otherwise they're coming our way, now, you right. know, to lured. So. And the last thing we talked about was paint. And it was real interesting because we had all grip and axle seal there. And they, you know, were friendly. <laughs> and <laughs> it was interesting. We'll yeah, they're they're very good competitors. Yeah. And, you know, they basically respect each other. And it got actually into a good conversation of, you know, what they can do and what they can't do. And what they actually put in their literature that they can't do, which you really can do, but it's the legal people that said, oh, you can't do that. Because it can be a problem, and it depends on how picky the owner is or his captain. Mm-hmm. I had a uh, little, uh, what would you call it, uh, uh, project uh, this summer making some uh, stair parts. I wanted to paint them nice with uh, some uh, semi-gloss white paint, and uh, you can't walk into Sherwin-Williams and get a semi-gloss white oil paint now. Um, but if you've got a paint problem, boat paint, you know? Boat paint is engineered to, to uh, be in the most drastic, uh, basically, environment. And, uh, boy, they've got some uh, phenomenal paints. The mm-hmm. All Grip, of course. Think of All Grip like uh, car paint. You know, it's not user, uh, not, not friendly for um, uh, casual users at all. You mean it might have a health problem? Well, <laughs> uh, the joke always is, I like that lightheaded feeling walking in and out of this building, but it's not good for you when you come out of the building and uh, see stars and can't breathe very good. There's a sign there. That, uh, <laughs> but again, that paint is, uh, the engineer of it is phenomenal, as you say. Alex Seal is real good, too. Yeah. 
And it's supposedly one that can be repaired. It's the same guy that designed All Grip. He went over and did Alex Seal. I ended up putting petted Easy Poxy on the stair part. So, yeah. you know, heck with Sharon Williams. And, uh, again, uh, Kirby Paint. The down yep, from Gloucester, down, yeah. New Bedford. New Bedford, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, they make traditional boat paints and, and uh, nice kind of uh, colors. And I think that's the only place you can get red lead anymore. Good local stuff, yeah. Yeah, I got into an argument with, uh, what was his name, out of uh, the landing school uh, that uh, did systems. Roger Hilliburton. And it was interesting that uh, he didn't like red lead because it actually can create uh, conduit for electricity running through the boat, so you got to be careful of uh, red lead. Oh, electrolysis issues, interesting. Huh. I questioned some people That's a year or two ago. Why did you red lead this instead of put the epoxy barrier coat to it? Say, you know, uh, my point being, if the old fellas had this stuff, they would have used it. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, told none of your business, and what are you telling us? We done it wrong. So uh, you know, <laughs> I thought it was a pretty good professional question, but again, uh, modern, yeah. Oh, electrolysis issues with the lead. Very huh. interesting. Yeah. Who could figure? That, that's some current news right there. Well, let's give the phone number one more time in case anybody saw the uh, uh, Lobster Wars we film. We have likes five to, minutes left. So like to say anything to else. Be a quickie. one 9378 And, John, Main Bill Boats is all about branding, right? It's about branding, but it's 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 what we are is the marketing arm of the boat builders. So, a lot of boat builders, as you know, uh, computers are not in the office in some respects, especially some of the, you know, the lobster boat builders, uh, you know, so they don't go out and they don't use websites and they don't, in fact, they don't like to go to boat shows. They don't like to do very much except build boats, you know, and what we do is we try to do that for them. And it's it's minimal. Keyboard would be covered with polyester resin and, and matte. Uh, fiberglass hairs, you know, so uh, yep. that's another story, too. Yeah, everything in a boat shop ends up that way. Got a fiberglass boat shop, and your but hands now, are uh, have you covered the bridge that's being built by using company over here in uh, Blue Hill? No, they're doing a bridge for uh, inside a building, and oh, it, yes, came yes, from, of it, yeah. it came from the main built boats website. They go, Well, because it's all uh, coal molded. And then it's got steel structures, and then the coal-molded parts are fitted to the steel structure. Okay. And the used company over in Bar Harbor has a boat-building division for their uh, CNC router. They they uh, we sell boat kits as well. That. Yes. Uh, we have David in Brooklyn for a little quick question. Oh, boy. Good morning, David. Hey, I hope that bridge is coming to a reversing falls near me. <laughs> uh, no, right. going to a, a very fancy building you probably will never be uh, walking around in, Dave. But, you know. I want it on the reversing falls, man. Uh Anyway, uh, that's not my question. I have to, uh, when I'm, like, rescuing my rusty car for another inspection sticker, uh, I like to paint it with something, and most of what is offered to me at the uh, auto parts is very expensive and very toxic. And I wonder what you think about genuine red lead as an alternative to uh, Rust-Oleum. And what was that place again that still makes it? Kirby Paints. Uh, Bedford, Massachusetts, man. New Bedford. New Bedford. I, uh, again, touch uh, red lead. uh, Hamilton's may or may not. uh, They might be able to get it for you, certainly. Right. Um, Toxic stuff, Dave. You know, red red lead. Not good for you. It's it's not paint that's hiding the lead. They're they're bragging about it. I 
I worry about the VOC stuff. Yeah. You know? Well, that that's a quick answer. We've got to wrap it up, David, but thank you for, for calling in. And that's about it for Boat Talk. Thanks to John Hansen for stopping by today. It's been fun, John. We'll have to do it again sometime. Sure. Thanks to Amy down in the engine room for keeping things going. And until uh, next month, uh, stay tuned for Boat Talk on the second Tuesday of the month. But stay tuned for Johnny Too Bad coming up with On the Wing next. Survive and sail, sir. I survive the catch the fish and take some home to lie, sir.